Well, this morning we're going to continue in our study of the book of Exodus. And the title of our message this morning is Grace in All Generations. Grace in All Generations. This is our ninth week in this series. And to kind of bring us back into the narrative of where we left off last week, we were in chapter 6, verse 9, at the conclusion of the sermon last week. And the state of the Israelite people is now they will not listen. They will not believe the word of God spoken through Moses because, the text tells us, of their broken spirit and the harsh slavery that they are facing. But despite the fact that the people have a broken spirit and despite the fact that there's harsh circumstances and there's unbelief in them and there's doubt in his people, God still has a plan that he is going to accomplish because nothing can or will stop God. As we said last week, the big idea for last week that we told the kids to write down and get deep into their minds was God will do what he says he will do. That's what sets God apart from us so much. God never fails to accomplish what he says he will accomplish. So look at verse 10 and how God responds to the unbelief of the people. God is not deterred. Instead, we read in Exodus chapter 6, verses 10 to 13. So Yahweh said to Moses, go in. Tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to let the people of Israel go out of his land. But Moses said to Yahweh, Behold, the people of Israel have not listened to me. How then shall Pharaoh listen to me? For I am of uncircumcised lips. But Yahweh spoke to Moses and Aaron and gave them a charge about the people of Israel and about Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to bring the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt. So again, This is the repeated theme of everything we've seen from Moses. This is perfectly consistent with his character and his responses, right? Things get difficult. He realizes the weight of the task. Moses gets fearful and starts objecting to God. And again, if we're being honest when we read this, so we can can not be honest. We can sit back here in our church pews today and we can go, come on, Moses, get your act together, man. I mean, I, I would have said, okay, God, and I would have gone. I mean, what's up? But if we're honest, we understand this objection that Moses has made. It seems reasonable and natural. It seems like the right response to our human nature on the face of it. Moses says, God, the the Israelite people aren't even listening. They're not believing. I mean, they did at first, but then things got hard. Now they're broken. Now they're fearful. If they won't even listen to me, God, how will the evil, hard-hearted Pharaoh listen and obey what you are telling me to go and say to him? That's the natural question. That's the logical concern to be raised in human thinking. But it's not the response of faith that Moses was supposed to have. Moses has been repeatedly told by God, God is going to deliver them. God is even going to compel Pharaoh to obey. So Moses should be trusting God and should be believing his word. But Moses is still struggling. And he's struggling because people struggle to trust and obey God in all generations. That's the reality for all of humanity from the very start of the world until right now today. No technology, no medical advancements, no societal structures make it any different for us today in regards to trusting God and how hard that can be than it was for these most ancient people. In fact, all the things we have may arguably even make it harder for us to trust and obey God in our lives sometimes today. Because you and I have so much more we can rely upon, and often we do. We don't even think to trust God and go to him first for our needs. We rely instead upon the things we feel like we can control, the things that we can see and touch around us. Most of us have come to rely upon communication and transportation technology that people just a few hundred years ago could never have even dreamed of. 
But you and I, we know. We can call virtually anyone. We can even do a video chat and see pretty much anyone that we want from pretty much anywhere that we desire to do that. You and I believe that we can hop into our vehicles and we can get pretty much anywhere we want to go without issue. I mean, some of us may have older trucks that we don't want to take certain places, but, but by and large, we think we can get to wherever it is we want to go, right? This church being eight miles north of Philadelphia really isn't even a thought for most of us. We just hop in a car and go. No big deal. Our default position is that we've come to rely upon these things as just part of our lives. We have incredible medical advancements that have been made in our world that we should be very grateful for. But most of us have come to kind of just naturally assume that if something bad happens or we get sick enough, because I know a lot of us aren't heading to the doctor right away, but if we get sick enough and we go, well, the doctors, the medical professionals, they're going to be able to help us out. They've got something. There's some medicine. There's some treatment. There's some plan that can probably take care of whatever it is I may face. And we understand there are things that are really complex. We understand there are things that still aren't understood yet. But most people think, our world tells us to think, hey, just given enough time, given enough resources, given enough human work put into it, well, then everything can really eventually be solved. Medicine, surgery, something will help fix whatever it is that ails us. We've come as a culture to rely upon these things. And we have societal structures in place today that are explicitly set up to try and provide and keep people out of poverty and meet people's needs. And this is only growing more and more in our day and age here, isn't it? I mean, these systems that we have seem to be ever expanding. And people, as we see in our culture all around us, they're relying more and more upon the fact that, well, surely if things get tough, surely if things get difficult, surely if I don't go to work, the government's just going to put some money into my bank account and keep me going. And lots and lots of people we're seeing are just relying upon these systems to take care of them. But the root issue is the same. No matter what progress has been made in history, the root issue is the same in every age. People struggle to trust and obey God in all generations. We just rely upon the things we're familiar with. But people in Moses' day were relying upon other things they were familiar with too. But God is really the only one who we should be trusting and who we should be relying upon to care for us. Because everything else in this world really is so fragile. Transportation can easily break down. Technology can fail to work. All of us know on our routes where the call is going to drop every time, right? It doesn't always work. We know that. Infrastructure can be destroyed a lot more quickly than many of us care to admit. Medicine runs into limitations all the time. And there are far more things that can't be treated or cured than doctors would like us to really think about. And government and societal structures can change in an instant. As been demonstrated over this last year, at a frightening pace, destruction and ruin can come upon a people from their leadership just as well as good and blessing could. One of the reasons that we're in the book of Exodus. One of the reasons I believe God has led us, and I do believe God led us to study the book of Exodus right now at this time, is because we can see in this book a very powerful picture of who God is and this contrast that's built out all throughout the book between who we are and the fragility of human powers of earth all around us and the magnificent, powerful God who's the same in the book of Exodus as he is today. So what the book of Exodus is constantly showing us is the sinfulness and the need of people. It's showing us also the holiness and power of God. And all throughout the book, we see the weakness of human powers and the limitations of evil 
rulers. The book of Exodus is drawing these contrasts for us that speak to us and help us live rightly, live worshipful lives today when we see God and understand him in this way from this book. And so today, what we're going to see in, in our time here is really from the first two parts, we're going to see the sinfulness and the need of people, and we're going to see the holiness and power, the grace of God. Now, some skeptics, you may be familiar with this or heard this, someone throw this out to you, they'll, they'll claim, well, the Bible's just a, a fictional story. It's just, it's just made up, and it's just kind of like the, the ideal uh, of the idealization of God's people, and so it's not really something we can trust and rely upon because it just kind of paints the religious life in a, in a good light so that people will want to do that and be encouraged by that. But if you've ever read the Bible, you know how that falls apart because the Bible is a really honest book about reality and it's a really honest book about God's people living in this reality that we live in, right? Nobody in the Bible, aside from Jesus Christ, no matter which book you go to, which hero you want to look at, nobody's perfect. Everyone's flawed. Everyone keeps making mistakes all throughout the Bible. And the Bible's honest about this. We kept seeing this with Moses over and over and over again, right? And Moses is held up as one of the, the best Israelites to have ever lived, the guy used by God to do incredible and mighty things, and yet time and time again over these six chapters, what do we find him doing but sinning? He falls short. See, the reality is in every family, in every generation, all throughout history, people struggle to trust and obey God. That's a universal truth. But here's the good news for us. God still redeems and saves broken people in every generation. So we need to understand there is nobody who God looks at and says either, well, they come from a really good family, so I'll save them or give them a pass. And likewise, there's no one that God looks at and says, well, they've come from a really bad line, so they don't have a chance. We might think that way, because of our sinfulness, because of how much we truly undervalue the power and grace of God. We can presume upon it. That's the more natural religious thing, is we presume upon God's grace. Well, my family always goes to church. Uh, Mom and dad really believe in Jesus. We've been at, going there as long as I can remember, so I guess I'm good. I guess I'm covered, because I come from a family that, that did these things. That's a dangerous mistake to make. See, the other side of it, though, is people who, who might think, well, God's grace, that's great for those people who go to church, who grew up in those families. Sure, God can love them and save them, but, but you don't know my, my issues, my sins, my family line. It's too messed up. It's too broken. And there are people who really believe that there's nothing for them here because surely they're too far gone. And you probably are thinking of some people who might think that way right now. The command to you and I is to go and share with them the good news. They are not too far gone. Their family lines, their own pasts do not preclude them from experiencing the grace and power of God. Here's the message of the gospel that you and I are to go and share. God's grace is not contingent upon family lines, one way or the other. Don't rely upon it. My family's been so good, I must be saved. My family's been so bad, there's no hope for me. God's grace is not contingent upon that at all. And the rest of Exodus chapter 6, where we sit here, is a genealogy that's inserted by Moses, which I think proves this point about God's grace and how family lines don't become something we ought to rely on. Like I've said before when we've looked at some of the, the genealogies in the text, I know these names are foreign and they're difficult for some of you. 
And so the reality is, you get to a passage like this one, and you just kind of skip over it. I'm being honest, right? That's what happens. Verse 14, these are the heads of their father's house. Bunch of names, bunch of names, more names. Oh, verse 26, these are the Aaron and Moses whom the Lord said, bring, right? I mean, it's it's happened, yes? (laughs) But what I've said to you for many times is what, at the very least, we should be thinking when we see a genealogy like this, even if the names seem difficult, even if they seem foreign, even if like we've never heard of that guy ever before, what we should think at the bare minimum is these are names of real people who really lived. Real men and women who breathed and lived lives like you and I do, whose lives and names were known by God and put into the scripture for a reason. He knows them the same way he knows you and I today. And we should recognize that these genealogies, they are here by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, for a purpose to show us that God knows his people intimately. We're not just numbers. We're not just his people generically. We are known by God. He knows our names personally. So when you hit a genealogy, more than just understanding that reality, that's the very minimum that you must understand. You also need to understand there's a reason for why this genealogy is put into the text at this point. The Holy Spirit did not make a mistake. There's a point that he had for us to see. And often that point comes out in who he includes in a list and who he does not include in a list. So if you've never heard this before, let me, let me help you kind of understand biblical genealogies. Biblical genealogies are not just ancient versions of Ancestry.com, right? We, we can go on and we can plug in our information and get a report of here's everybody in your family line as far back as you know, we want to, to go. And you're tracing from person to person to person. The idea is I want a complete record of all the dates of everyone in this family line. Biblical genealogies are not like that. They're not designed just to be records of the sons of sons of sons of sons. There's a point in what they're trying to convey, and it's shown by the fact that in genealogies, there's intentionally chosen names. They're selective, often not fully chronological. You can't go back and trace it back 100% out of each genealogy because there's names put in for a reason and other names left out for another reason. They're accurate. These are truly of the line, but you may have people not mentioned because the point is not Ancestry.com genealogies. The point is a spiritual message to be conveyed through the genealogy. So when God leads Moses by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to include these specific names here, He has a purpose in mind for those who will read this, a message he wants them to understand as he hears about these specific people. The genealogy that we're looking at here at the end of Exodus chapter 6 shows us family lines do not guarantee godliness, salvation, or damnation. Family lines do not guarantee godliness, salvation, or damnation. In this genealogy, what we will find are some great examples of people who were redeemed by God's grace and worshipped him faithfully. And Moses and Aaron, they're mentioned in here. Of course, we're looking at their lives. They're used mightily by God. But there's others mentioned in this section as well that are faithful to God and used by him. In verse 16, we're told the names of Gershon, Kohath, and Merari. They're sons of Levi whose families become important servants of God in the tabernacle and in the religious life of Israel in the years to come. 
In the book of Numbers, we find out that each of these families were given specific responsibilities on how they would support the tabernacle being built and cared for as the people moved around in the wilderness. The family of Gershon, they're specifically told, it is your task, your duties to care for the tent and the curtains of the tabernacle. The family of Kohath is, ser- is to serve by caring for all the furnishings and utensils from inside the tabernacle. They're in charge of taking care of those things. The family of Merari ca- carried all the tent poles, the ropes, etc. They built the structure for the tabernacle to be erected each time. These families become servants of the Lord who honor him in serving in practical ways, and God blessed them for their service. They're a good example that's mentioned here. Another good name is mentioned in verse 25. It's Aaron's grandson, whose name is Phineas. In Numbers 25, he is the only person to be so committed to God's honor and glory the way that all the people should have been, that he alone acted righteously, obeyed the law, and did what was right, even though it was difficult. And go read Numbers 25 and see what he did and how extremely committed to the honor of the Lord he was. And he was rewarded by God. He having saved the people from judgment from their sins and their disobedience. He goes on to become a military commander for Israel in Numbers chapter 31. In Judges 20, his name shows up again, and we hear he was actually able to enter the promised land because he was a faithful servant of God, something Moses himself won't be allowed to do because of his sins, as we'll see later. From Phinehas even comes the line of high priests for Israel in years to come. This was a godly man who honored the Lord with his zeal. His name is mentioned in this genealogy to show us a good, positive example. But not all the names that are mentioned here are good, positive examples like these selections. Some of them are not faithful to God. Some of them are not heroic. Some of them are not ones we're called to emulate. The family line of Moses and Aaron includes a lot of sin and brokenness as well. So if you look at the list there, look at verse 21. You'll notice there's a guy mentioned whose name is Korah. He's a cousin of Moses and Aaron. And what happens with Korah in Numbers chapter 16, which just happens to be the last reading, I say happens to be providentially the Lord arranged this when I had no knowledge of this is what we would talk about on this day. But in Numbers chapter 16, a text you would have just read if you're on the Bible reading plan and you're up to date, is that Korah begins to despise Moses' leadership. Korah wants to become the leader himself. He wants to be in control. He wants to have all the power in and of himself. He doesn't like to submit to God's appointed leader, Moses, so he leads a revolt and a rebellion and tries to oust Moses. And God steps in to handle that personally. He causes the earth to open up and swallow Korah and all the followers in the rebellion. God kills them all instantly for their self-centered sinfulness. That's a powerful display of the righteous consequences of disobeying God and creating disunity in the people of God, isn't it? Praise God he doesn't always judge that this way. Because we'd have a lot more seismic activity in this world than we do. Another negative example comes from the names given in verses 23 and following. There's two sons of Aaron that are named Nadab and Abihu. Again, we go look at their lives and we'll find a picture of gross rebellion against God's way and dramatic judgment for that. Nadab and Abihu, they're mentioned several times. They start out really well. They get positions of leadership. They become privileged as servants of God, getting to experience things most Israelites don't. But over time, they become wicked and rebellious, and they misuse their positions 
deciding they're just going to do their jobs in the way they want to do it, not the way God has said. They don't want to submit to God's authority. They don't want to submit to his words through Moses and Aaron. And so they end up offering what the Bible calls strange fire of worship, an unworthy, unholy type of worship. And God responds to their strange fire by consuming them with his holy fire and kills them for their sin in Leviticus chapter 10. So just two different examples on both sides. You've got great examples in this lineage here, and you've got some really negative examples in this lineage here. Moses and Aaron come from people who include those who have been faithful and those who were unfaithful because no family line is perfect. And the point for us to see is that God, despite no family line being perfect, God still redeems and saves broken people in every generation. I mean, Aaron's sons aren't given a pass for their sin because they're Aaron's sons. Korah is not given a pass because he's a cousin to Moses. These were people who were naturally sinful people who lived out their sin. They did not consider seriously who God was, what God has said, and their rebellion earned them the just, righteous wrath of God. It makes no difference who their parents were, who their cousins are, what family line they come from. They were personally called to worship God. They refused to do that as he said, and their sins were judged righteously. Dr. Philip Ryken comments very rightly, worshiping God is serious business. The holy God demands to be worshiped in a holy way, and we must approach him with reverence and awe. That is absolutely true. The Bible's far too clear on this point for me not to stress it to you once again and to call each of us personally to repentance and response to this reality. You cannot play at worshiping God. He knows everything. He sees everything. Having a position or title, as these examples show us, being part of a good family line, being in church on Sundays, doing some religious activities, you know, when it's not too inconvenient for us, none of those external things will fool God if your heart is not humbly, truly submitted to him, if you are not honestly obeying and following him. God sees our hearts. He's not fooled by the outside. He sees our hearts. He knows our thoughts. He's witnessing everything we do. He's present for every action we take in public and in private. We truly live our lives. The Latin phrase, quorum Deo, means in the presence or in the face of God. There's nothing hidden from him. Everything is before his watching eyes. He knows our names. He knows our actions. He knows our secrets. He knows what's driving us. He knows what's motivating us. He knows what's going on inside our hearts at every single moment. And this truth, it should be convicting to us. It should be sobering to us. It should motivate us not to be cavalier, not to be careless with our lives. It should cause us to be serious about not just playing at this thing of following God, but to fully be totally all in, to obey him, because anything less is not a worthy and proper response to who he is. And this truth will need to press into some of the hearts hearing it to break out pride and rebellion, to break out the bondage of sin that's keeping some people living, as we've said over the last several weeks, as slaves to our sin instead of living free as God has come to make his people by the work of Christ. The word of God 
will be piercing to the heart of the rebel at the same time that it can bring comfort to the heart of the humble believer. Because notice, despite the fact that Moses and Aaron, and these examples we've all seen, they're all part of this really broken family line, despite how sober the reality of rebellion and judgment was just in this one family line from the examples we've seen. Remember, God redeems and saves broken people in every generation. So look at verses 26 and 27. Notice what the text says specifically. These are the Aaron and Moses to whom Yahweh said, bring out the people of Israel from the land of Egypt by their hosts. It was they who spoke to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, about bringing out the people of Israel from Egypt, this Moses and this Aaron. Christian, don't miss this. The Aaron and the Moses that are mentioned here is part of this family line. They're the ones who come from a broken, messed up family line. They're the ones God chose to use and do amazing, mighty things. That's the power of God. The redemptive work of God is that he chooses and redeems broken, sinful people to become his own children whom he loves and uses and changes in this world. So that should give us great comfort and hope and encouragement today. The sins of our pasts personally, the sins of our family lines that we may come from, they do not have to define us. God's not bound up in any way by what's happened before. He's not unwilling to work because some sin marks your past or your family's past. Right? Aaron was chosen by God. And then Aaron fails as a father to the extent that his two oldest sons, they, they can sin so boldly and blasphemously that God will kill them for it. But then Aaron's family line doesn't just end there. God's not like, I'm done with this group of people. Why? We see his, son, his grandson, Phineas, blessed by God and used in mighty ways. God redeems that generation. He saves out of that generation. Phineas wasn't punished or kept out because of the sins of his uncle. And he wasn't given a free pass because of who his grandfather was. He was called himself to be obedient and zealous for the honor of God. He was, and so he was blessed by God for his response. He wasn't caught up in the sins of the past. Surely God just can't have anything to do with me because of what my family must have done. No, he chose to obey and follow God in the present, just like you and I need to do. So good news. God redeems and saves broken people in every generation. No matter what past we come in here with, no matter what baggage we may be carrying from our parents, or our grandparents, or some other relative, God is here to deal with each of us right here and right now personally. You and I can experience his redeeming personal power at work in our lives so that we don't have to be defined by the past. We have a God who's much bigger than the past. And likewise, we do not need to be defined by what's happening around us either. We have a God who's much bigger than all of the things we see happening in this world today too. So I'm coming to realize as I'm having more conversations, and I appreciate those of you who are having conversations with me. Let me, let me just lay this out again. I, I would hope it's, it's obvious. I would hope it's clear to you and something you would know. But, but if you ever have a question about something, you have my number. If you don't, come get it. Like, let's talk, right? I know how to make coffee. We can sit down and have a cup of coffee. You don't like coffee? I can make tea. You want a meal? I'll make a meal. Or I'll have my wife make a meal. That'd be better than what I make. <laughs> but we can talk. 
If you have a question, ask. If you don't understand something I've said, ask. Don't make assumptions. Don't presume we're here. We're in relationship with one another, or we're supposed to be. So here's what I'm learning, because some are, start, are talking to me, and I, I greatly appreciate that. Thank you so much for that. Here's what I'm realizing. Not everyone's understanding that I really do believe this to be so important. I feel like this has been driving everything for me for over a year now, but let me just say it as clearly as I possibly can. We must be making the best use of our time because the days we live in are evil. This generation is broken. The world is getting worse. Sin is rampant all around us. You don't have any time to waste today. We live in wartime. It's a spiritual battle and a real battle. But a lot of us think we're on vacation. You don't have to look that hard around to see how rapidly our world is changing. There are evil rulers rising. Persecution is spreading. We've talked about this in here so many times and prayed this way together so many times. We have brothers and sisters all around the world and our own country who still can't do what we're doing today, who are still being told, you may not gather in the name of the Lord to worship him, or if you do, here's all the restrictions. You can't sing. You can't do these things. We still have brothers and sisters in that spot Today, persecution's on the rise. There are many believers who are in jail for trying to do what we're doing today. We live in a culture marked by fear and division. People today are more divided, I think, than ever have been before, especially on political issues. It seems like every issue today, no matter how big or small that issue really is, is just seen as a reason, a pretext to hate the other side. This idea of working through the issue seems to have gone out the window sometime. Now, all we do is dig deeper into bitterness and assumptions, and we attack the other side and vilify them. And here's what's so tragic, is this is our culture, but this has always been part of the world's culture. It's bleeding into the church today. We're so infected by what's happening in our world that we're bringing it in to the church globally. It's affecting the body of Christ like a disease. Unity is being destroyed because people are embodying the self-righteousness and pride of our culture, and they come into the church still living like slaves to sin, even in the church, instead of being transformed and freed as children of God who are working alongside their brothers and sisters in unity towards the same goal. There's a lot of other things I could say. And I have been saying them over the last year. I hope you've been listening. Look, if you haven't heard me say anything, you're like, wow, this is the first time pastor's been saying this. It's not. Go back and listen. That's why I put out all the sermons. You can listen to the audio. Go see the video on Facebook, YouTube. It's all available there. You'll hear me saying these same things if you're listening. Understand me. I know. I'm convinced the time is short. The need is great. And the price that we will pay if we don't respond faithfully to God is very high. Very high. So praise God that he's still at work in saving and in blessing in every generation those who turn to him and seek him. Because that includes us right now. That includes us here today. No matter what our past is, no matter what's going on around us, right here, this moment is a divinely orchestrated moment for you and I to respond to God and to live as his children freed not captive to what's happening in our culture around us. He has grace to extend in every generation. So let's receive that today. Worship team, if you'll come this morning, we're going to sing here in a moment, and we're going to create 
space to respond to who God is and what he says and what he does. And the fact is that we're broken generation here today, but God has grace and he saves people in all generations, including ours. So in Numbers chapter 6, through Moses, God instructs Aaron to make this his blessing to the people. That's to be repeated often. Numbers chapter 6, verses 22 to 27. Yahweh spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron and his sons, saying, Thus you shall bless the people of Israel. You shall say to them, hear this, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. So shall I put my name upon the people of Israel, and I will bless them. Those of us who are Christians in this room today, we are the true people of God. We are the true Israel. Israel was never meant to be one specific family line. It was never meant to be one ethnic group. It was never meant to be people born in one national, national boundaries physically. We'll see this even in the book of Exodus as we go on. The intent of God from the beginning was a diverse people. And so the true people of God are not people who can trace our family lineages back to Moses or back to Abraham. Paul makes it very, very clear in the New Testament that true Israel are those who put their trust in God to be their Savior. And so what that means for us living right now in light of the full revelation of Scripture that we have is putting our trust in Jesus Christ. There's no salvation outside of him. There's no way to be God's people apart from trusting in Jesus who came and lived a perfect life, who died a substitutionary atonement death, who rose from the dead, proving he's God, proving he's conquered all the sin, and inviting all who would trust in him to have full forgiveness of their sins. He would save all. No matter what generation, no matter what past, no matter what baggage, no matter what sins, he will save all who trust in him. But you have to trust in him. You have to turn to him. You cannot rely on your family line to be your salvation any more than you should think that your family line precludes you from receiving salvation. Today, we can lay down our pasts. We don't have to think about what we've done, what our family has done, and let that keep us captive. We can bring that before God. We can lay it down. We can experience grace and mercy and forgiveness. But you must seek him personally this morning. He will meet with us if we respond to him. So we are going to sing of the blessing that Aaron spoke over the people of Israel. And here today it's spoken over us, the true Israel, as we ask God to bless us and our generation and the generations to come as we follow after him. Let's sing and worship together. Lord, we recognize that it is nothing but your blessing and your grace that could cause any of us in this room to be your people. Help us to lean in to that truth. And today, Lord, to respond to you in our hearts, our lives personally. No matter what's come before, let us set that all aside and look to you right now and find your grace and your mercy evident, poured out, overflowing in our lives. This is the blessing we ask for today. This is the blessing we need today. Thank you for hearing our prayers. Thank you for meeting with us. Thank you for receiving this worship. Thank you for loving us. Thank you, Jesus, for saving us. We ask you to work in our lives as we leave this place today. In your beautiful, powerful name we pray, Lord Jesus. And everyone said, amen.